You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. This week we have a very interesting guest. It is Eric McGracken, who is a lawyer dealing with personal injury, and he's the author of the famous BC Injury Law blog. And Eric is joining us on the podcast to talk about the new regulations that define what is a minor injury and the caps for ICBC claims. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the Driving Law podcast. I'm really excited that you agreed to come on. You wrote a blog recently about the uh, definition of minor injury, and it's been shared very widely, as many of your blogs are. And I thought maybe you could give some explanation to our listeners about what your thoughts are on this. Sure. So, so I could probably just ramble on for quite a while with that kind of an open-ended question, but but I'll start with this, Kyla. And, and first, thanks for having me on. I do appreciate you you uh, giving me access to your podcast. The term minor injury, first and foremost, what everybody needs to know is it's a misleading term. It's it's basically a political term that the government used to make the public okay with having your rights stripped. So what what the BC government has done is they've targeted a whole host of injuries, limiting uh, the right to compensation for people that sustain those injuries by other people's negligent driving. And whenever I say the word minor injury, I want your listeners to imagine me putting quotations around it, because minor does not mean minor in terms of what almost anybody else thinks about it. Minor is defined in the legislation to encompass a whole host of injuries, uh, most of which nobody would think of as a minor injury. Things like chronic depression, major depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, concussions, chronic pain, and a whole host of other at least partly disabling physical ailments are caught in this wide net that the government calls minor injuries. And so what British Columbians are in for after April 1st, 2019, that's when these minor injury laws kick into force, is a rude awakening. A whole bunch of people are going to be seriously injured in car crashes by drunk drivers, impaired drivers, distracted drivers, negligent drivers. And when they go to ICBC for compensation for their injuries, they're going to be told that they, in fact, have a minor injury and their rights are curtailed and they're going to get offers that are, uh, you know, frankly going to um, disturb a lot of people. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to be left desired in British Columbia's scheme, and it's probably one of the most aggressive, if not the most aggressive, uh, campaigns in Canada in targeting victim rights. So is it, it, when you say that the officers are going to be laughable, do you mean that anybody with, with a concussion is subject to this minor injury definition, even if they're like, you know, an, an, scientists working for the Canadian space program and now they can never go to Mars and they have to work a desk job or I don't know I'm trying to imagine some extreme example but yeah so so every concussion by default is going to be caught as a minor injury and from there there's ways once you're labeled as a minor injury there's ways to work around it but um, it's not it's not quite that easy and different classes of injuries have different 
ways to shake off the minor injury label. With concussions, there's a test of requiring at least four months of consecutive almost total disability. And if the concussion is that bad, then it could shake off the minor injury label. But, but you, know, you know, whether you're a scientist or whether <clears throat> you work the front end of a desk or, you know, student, retired, whatever it is, everybody is caught by this minor injury dragnet as a default. And so, so to take concussion, for example, say you're knocked out cold in a car crash, you have a brain injury, you're concussed, for weeks you can't work or for weeks you can't return to school, but as the months drag on, you improve somewhat and you're able to get back to work. But from there, you have lingering consequences, maybe photophobia, maybe noise makes you sensitive, maybe your concentration isn't what it used to be, maybe your energy isn't what it used to be, maybe you have chronic headaches, it doesn't matter. It's still a minor injury, even if you have long-lasting, even permanent consequences, so long as the disability doesn't last beyond a certain period of time. So like I say, there's going to be a rude awakening because a lot of uh, permanent injuries are in fact classified as minor injuries under this new uh, regime that the BC government's put upon us. Wow. So what are you planning on doing anything about this? Are you, is there a way to sort of constitutionally challenge the government's ability to regulate this? Or is this just what we have to live with? So we saw this coming for, for a long time. Um, you, know, you know, it was probably half a year or a year ago that the government came out with a pretty um, aggressive marketing campaign indicating they're going to bring changes to the ICBC landscape. Uh, but despite having the broad strokes out there for a while, things haven't come together until last week. It was last week that the regulations came out. Uh, both under the Insurance Vehicle Act and the legislation creating the civil tribunal. It's sort of a one-two punch as well. Not only did the government uh, strip people's rights for non-pecuniary damages when you have a so-called minor injury, but they've also limited people's access to the judiciary. So if ICBC says you have a minor injury, even if you have a major injury, and I don't mean the definition of minor being somewhat absurd. I mean, if under the legislation you have a real injury, uh, a substantial injury, something that's not minor, but the government or ICBC in the tort claim says it's a minor injury, just the mere allegation takes away your right to be in court, and then you're forced to go through a civil tribunal, and there's a couple of hurdles you have to clear in order to get a permission slip uh, to go to the BC Supreme Court. That seems absurd. The idea it, that one party can control where the litigation takes place by by merely taking a position that might not even be be justifiable. Yeah. And and that exists in some regards, um, in other areas of law, but it's okay. So, for example, if you're injured in a car crash and you sue for damages, and the defendant alleges that the Workers' Compensation Act should kick in, that it's a driver or that it's a worker versus worker situation, and WCB should have exclusive jurisdiction, they could make a unilateral allegation, even if they're dead wrong, and they could steer it out of the courts for WCAT to decide that issue. And, you know, it, it's frustrating, and it's created some some um, off results for the litigation for some people, but that's allowed. But where the government's probably crossed the line here is they're using charter-protected grounds um, to discriminate against people to then derail the judicial process. So I think, you know, you asked what I plan on doing about this. It's still a bit of a work in progress in that the regulations just came out 
um, last Friday. It's basically been about a week or so that these these regulations have been out. But as I've had a chance to review them and digest them, I'm thinking more and more that we've got a Section 15 charter violation with how the B.C. government's put this together. And the way I want to explain it is as follows. If you have a prescribed class of injury, and that prescribed class is whatever the government calls minor, and they could expand that list at their whim by regulation so they could add whatever they want to a minor injury in the future. If you have one of those prescribed classes of injuries, simply, or even if you don't, ICBC simply by alleging that you do takes you out of the court. You have to go before a civil tribunal. At that civil tribunal, you have to persuade them that it's not a minor injury. But if you fail and they say it's a minor injury, you're then stuck in that civil tribunal unless you could persuade them that you have a substantial possibility of warranting damages in the realm of the BC Supreme Court. And the gatekeeping function of who's subject to those barriers before going to court are based entirely on charter-protected grounds. It's whether you have a certain physical or mental injury or disability. That's, that's the gatekeeping test. And the charter says you simply cannot give people a different route to justice or different legal rights based on protected grounds. And in those protected grounds are physical and mental disabilities. So I think we've got a bit of a charter mess here that the courts are going to have to sort out after these laws kick in. Uh, in April of next year. But the, the more I think about it, Kyla, what what this regime does, what this, and, and I say regime not to be inflammatory, but it's this whole mm-hmm. host of laws that work together. Um, what these laws do is they treat people with prescribed injuries about as well as the courts treat vexatious litigants. So <laughs> anybody, anybody could go to court and file a notice of civil claim and try to have their matter adjudicated. Unless you're a vexatious litigant, if you filed frivolous claim after frivolous claim after frivolous claim, the courts give you a timeout and say, listen, you can't come to court again unless you persuade us you have something of merit and then we're going to give you a permission slip. Well, what this does is this treats everybody who's a car crash victim with a physical or mental prescribed injury as well as a vexatious litigant. It says before these people can come to court, they have to get a permission slip from a different tribunal saying their claim has merit. So I think, you know, I think this is a, you know, um, um, a host of laws that has gone too far and the charter, undoubtedly the court is going to be asked by a litigant in the near future whether this whole regime passes charter scrutiny my sense the more i'm looking at it is that it does not now it's interesting that you compare these people to vexatious litigants because one of the things that icbc and the government has repeatedly been saying is that this huge deficit that icbc has is in part the fault of lawyers and i know you're obviously on one side of the of the legal uh, battle for for people who are injured in car accidents. What do you think when ICBC says it's all lawyers' faults, why we're so much in debt? What, what What's your reaction to that? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a loaded question. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I've got strong I've got strong feelings on this. But but the key thing I'll say is this: ICBC has made hundreds of millions of dollars of profit year year for well over a decade. And in recent years, just about one or two years ago, things took a turn for the worse. ICBC started losing money. Nothing's changed 
one or two years ago from five or six years ago in terms of people's legal rights. Nothing's changed in the past few years about the ability of lawyers to do their job and to represent people and to look after the interests of people who are injured in car crashes. So I don't know why lawyers all of a sudden are to blame when ICBC is losing money when for years ICBC is able to make profit after profit. The reality is ICBC, like any private insurance business or any business, period, uh, has business risks. There's good years, there are bad years. And for a decade strong, ICBC made billions in profit, and the government scooped well over a billion dollars of profit out of ICBC. So any, any conservative business, when you make a lot of money, you keep some back, you save for a rainy day because you might have a few bad months or a few bad years ahead. And the insurance industry is always volatile. There's ups and there's downs. There's good stretches and bad stretches, and you save that money for a rainy day. But what happened is the government scooped all of the profit out of ICBC year after year after year and they didn't have that contingency when things took a turn for the worse and it's probably a short term turn for the worse so the government wants icbc to be back in the black as quickly as possible and unfortunately instead of scrutinizing the practices of icbc the management Mm -hmm. of icbc to see what they're doing or instead of acknowledging that hey maybe billions shouldn't have been taken out of icbc's profits to Uh, help offset a lean year or two. Instead, what the government did is they turned on the public and they took away the public's rights. And politically, they were very clever. They they targeted lawyers. They said, let's make lawyers the bad guys. Oh, a lot yeah. of people Everybody loves to hate on lawyers. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't like lawyers. We're low-hanging fruit. And personal injury lawyers, we don't do ourselves a lot of favors. So we're maybe the lowest-hanging fruit in terms of being the butt of lawyer jokes or being uh, you know, on the receiving end of, of negative the, the, the opinions of lawyers. The term ambulance chaser is uh, you, referring specifically to your uh, your area of practice. <laughs> you got it. I'm a proud ambulance chaser, Kyle. I've been doing, I've been doing this for 15 years. Good for you. And, and, and so what they did is they said, let's make the lawyers the bad guys. But here's, here's really what people should understand. They didn't do a single thing that targets lawyers' rights. So I still have a law license. I still could be a, quote, ambulance chaser. I could still represent people after these laws take into effect. My, ra- my rights haven't been stripped. Other than me as a British Columbian, every British Columbian's rights have been stripped. But instead of saying that, you can't sell that to the public. It'd be political suicide. So instead, they basically said, hey, let's blame the lawyers. We're trying to reform all of this. They're bad guys. They've cost all of us money. Your premiums are going up because of the lawyers. And the lawyers were gun-shy to even tackle that message, which you know, which is a little bit disappointing, I guess. We're, we're great advocates except for ourselves. But the reality is, other than being the straw man in this entire political saga, lawyers weren't targeted. The public's rights were targeted in a fairly heavy-handed fashion as well. Now, the reality is when you strip away the public's rights, the lawyers that represent those people on a contingency basis make less money. So indirectly, lawyers are targeted. But they didn't make one single legal reform that impacts a personal injury lawyer's ability to practice law. They implemented reforms that target British Columbians injured by drunk drivers, impaired drivers, distracted drivers, negligent drivers. That's it. And you could be a pedestrian, you could be a cyclist, you could be retired, you could be a child. You could be a worker. You could be a driver. You could be anything. When a bad driver smashes into you, your rights were taken away. 
so that bad driver could pay more affordable rates on insurance. That's actually the trade-off that the government came. But again, it's been messaged differently. It's been messaged by saying there's a lot of frivolous claims out there. We're only going to target minor claims. Lawyers have created a whole host of problems. That's what's been sold to the public to the public. Well, I think ICBC also hasn't taken any responsibility for the instructions they've given their lawyers, because they employ just as many lawyers, if not more, than the plaintiffs do, and they take absolutely untenable and ridiculous positions often um, in litigation, uh, arguing that stop signs that existed didn't exist, or that there wasn't an intersection where an intersection everybody knows is. I, I think that nobody has pointed the finger at ICBC for increasing the litigation costs by taking those positions in trials that don't need to be taken. Yeah, you know, you know this as well as anybody. It takes two to tango in in the courtroom, and if if either side is taking an unreasonable position, it's going to add unnecessary cost, unnecessary time, unnecessary expense to the process, and and you know neither side of civil litigation is immune to that criticism. And so what was what was bizarre to me is you say, here's a profitable company year after year after year. Nothing's changed. All of a sudden, they're losing money. The government didn't decide to scrutinize ICBC's own practices. That makes no sense to me at all. Um, but I think they had this agenda in mind for a while, and they sold it in the way that they sold it. I mean, that's it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the government of the day, they're always political creatures, and, <laughs> and they have a way of getting what they want. So I don't think they ever intended on scrutinizing ICBC. I think they intended for a long time to take away the public's rights and to steer um, you know, a host of personal injury claims away from the courts and into this civil tribunal that's been created. Now, do you think that this is CAPS? Like, I know the government's been saying, oh, we're not, we're not bringing back CAPS. These aren't CAPS. These aren't CAPS. But to me, it reads like caps. Well, they're caps. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, there's no, there's no other way uh, to phrase it. These are caps. And, you know, unfortunately, they outright lied. One of the things the trial lawyers did before the last election is they reached out to all the major political parties and they asked them for their positions on issues that impact uh, the trial lawyers association. And so one of the one you know, one of the questions was caps and tort reforms and things like no fault, which is even more extreme than caps. It's outright stripping every victim's right to sue. And so they reached out to the government or to the you know, to the political parties. And in writing, the NDP came back and they said, no, we don't support caps. We don't support no fault. We don't support any you know form of stripping. Uh, people's rights, and then they went around and did exactly that. So I, you know, it's unfortunate that they weren't candid or honest in their, um, you know, in their written answer to the trial lawyers. And yeah, you know, again, my my sense is because early on in their um, stint in power, they went ahead and they did this. So I suspect they planned on doing this for a long time, and and they politically messaged it in a way that was sellable to the public but i think you don't you don't believe the line that they keep saying that you know when they got into power they realized that things were way worse than the previous government had made it out to be yeah you know i think that's their explanation for why they changed their position but you know me personally no i don't believe that i think they've had an agenda um to go this route to go more towards the no-fault route and taking away people's rights um you know and 
you know, maybe I'm wrong on that, but but that's my sense of the entire situation because they had this whole host of reforms. Um, you know, if their if their concern was to minimally impact the public's rights to bring ICBC back to black, there's a lot. Um, you know, they could have taken a far less aggressive uh, attack than what they've done. They not only capped so-called minor injuries, but they've defined almost every injury you sustain in a car crash as a minor injury. So that's not consistent with a party that truly didn't want to go this route. That's consistent with a party that probably had an agenda you know, to go this route. And, and again, for me, it just comes down to um, politics. They did, you know, they... They wanted to make sure they could implement their agenda, and so you have to be very careful with the messages you put out there publicly. Mm-hmm. Do you have you looked at the experiences of of caps and no fault in other provinces compared to what it is in BC? And do you have any thoughts about sort of the differences? Well, in British Columbia, what the, the classes of injuries that they've designated as minor are far more uh, broad and. Um, aggressive than than other jurisdictions so so they say things like tmj disorders that you know it's basically a chronic job <laughs> yeah exactly exactly a wad injury whiplash associated disorder concussion every psychiatric condition believe it or not they say every psychiatric condition even chronic psychiatric conditions are minor injuries so so one of the main differences is just how um broadly British Columbia defines minor injury. That's an outlier from any other Canadian jurisdiction. And I think that in and of itself, I'm sure a charger challenge is going to be taken on that because while caps on minor injuries have been upheld constitutionally in other jurisdictions, British Columbians have been, been more aggressive. But the other, the other key difference, and I've highlighted this already um, yet to some extent, is they've combined these minor injuries with stripped judicial rights based solely on whether you have a certain prescribed class of injury. I'm not aware um, of any other jurisdiction in Canada that's done that. I think that's a unique BC approach. And I think that's where they overstepped what, um, you know, you know, A, I'm hoping this, but B, um, this is my view. As, as I'm digging into the research on this, I'm thinking the courts will have a hard time justifying that charter infringement. So are we going to see you leading the uh, the charter challenge charge on this? We're, we're going to see whoever's hired by somebody who's turned down as having a minor injury after April uh, retaining counsel. And I can't imagine if the counsel is somebody other than me that a charter challenge isn't going to be brought. So, yeah, I think it's either going to be me or it's going to be somebody else. But I think this issue is going to be put before the courts. I have I have little doubt about it. And that's part of the reason why I put my thoughts out there on my blog. I mean, I get you know, I get a lot of content out there, as, as you know, but I'm not I'm not um, trying to preserve my argument arguments for myself. Anybody's free to take my views of why we have a Section 15 violation here and put that before the court. I think, I, I, I mean, frankly, not only will the B.C. Supreme Court dive in on this issue and perhaps other facets of potential charter breaches, but I, I imagine this is going to go at least up to the B.C. Court of Appeal before all the dust settles and we all know what we're stuck with in British Columbia. All right, so if somebody finds themselves facing discrimination as a result of an injury in an accident, how can they get a hold of you? Well, I'm easy to find. Uh, bcinjurylaw.com is my, um, 
is my website, mcisaacandcompany.com is my firm website. Uh, you could find me on Twitter, Eric McGracken, E-R-I-K-M-A-G-R-A-K-E-N, or just Google me. There's a host of ways you could track me down. All right. And you can always reach out to me as well if you need to get in touch with Eric. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. This was really informative, and I look forward to the outcomes of the constitutional challenges to this. Kyla, yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate uh, you sharing your platform with me. All right, and now we turn to Paul Doroshenko to join me in talking about the other big driving law-related bombshell that came this week, which was the introduction of ride-hailing legislation in British Columbia. Bombshell. I think, yeah, I think you could call it a bombshell because I didn't expect them to to do that now. I mean, they kind of had put the kibosh on it. They put it either on the back burner, I guess you could say it was on the back burner, but I thought that they were just opposed to it. Maybe it was uh, pressure from taxi companies or something kept it from happening. I don't think they were opposed to it. They campaigned on the platform of bringing it in. Did they? I don't remember that. Yeah, but then they just never did it. I I got a laugh today out of uh, Andrew Wilkinson's tweet about the ride hailing legislation, which we're going to delve into in a moment, but um, I got a laugh out of it because he he tweeted about how this is just more um more delay in bringing ride sharing to uh british columbia and how this government never actually wanted ride hailing all along but his government did literally nothing absolutely nothing they did nothing yeah yeah so i tweeted at him invited him on the podcast to talk about the legislation his government tabled to introduce ride hailing in BC, but unfortunately he hasn't taken me up on that invite. Well, they didn't introduce any legislation. That's they didn't do that's anything, the but joke. the, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of fascinating that no government did in the, um, in the, the sense that it's clearly something that for which many British Columbians, like there's a demand for it, many British Columbians want it. There's this ongoing complaint about never being able to get a taxi uh, particularly at certain hours of the day and sort of an unfulfilled um, uh, demand out there for for these services. And all of the people in British Columbia having used rideshare in other locations, it's amazing how slow the two different governments have been to provide this. But at least the NDP is sort of setting it up so before the next election, if they manage to to survive that long, um, they're going to be able to say that they're the ones who brought it to BC. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it going to come to BC? Because the one of the high ups at Uber have come out and said, we can't operate under the legislation as it's currently drafted. Well, that's fine. Maybe Lyft can. Maybe Lyft will have the advantage in British Columbia over Uber. You know, I, I keep thinking about another this. app. Maybe it was, uh, yeah, you just don't want to say another app. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, maybe the uh, BC government designed it so Uber can't be here because of the um, the connection of that Uber has to Saudi Arabia. I, I'm sure they weren't thinking that. I wouldn't be surprised that they were thinking that. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia has come out uh, really strongly against Canada. Uh, the Saudi Arabian regime is now implicated, not implicated, there, you know, it appears that they they facilitated the murder of a journalist. Uh, you know, the Saudis are looking really, really bad right now. Um, uh, 
buying military equipment from Canada and other locations to use in um, in wars. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the BC government is not enthusiastic about having Uber and would prefer to have Lyft. What is Uber's connection to it's Saudi Arabia? Huge portion of it is owned by the uh, Saudi Arabian aristocracy, the the princes of Saudi Arabia. Okay. So they but don't they own everything? I mean, if you they own a lot of things. Money. They own a lot of things. Well, they've been long time concerned that their money was um, that the that they had so much invested in in the oil field uh, and energy and they have that kind of money so they wanted to diversify and so one of the things they purchased was uh, significant uh, shareholdings in Uber. Okay well I mean I don't know I don't think that that legislation that's been probably taken a long time to draft had at its at its core an ulterior motive of eliminating Uber from the British Columbia market because of its connection to Saudi Arabia. Maybe not, but I think that there's probably a, an awareness of Uber's connection to Saudi Arabia and the fact that this is a contentious issue. I think I find the most fascinating thing about this is that the government will have the ability to control prices. Is that what's in the legislation? Say, yeah. I haven't read the legislation. I'm counting well, on you when I when I come on your show, I'm counting on you to explain it to me. So <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks explain for it prepared. to me. Yes, so the government has created effectively a board that's going to control everything, everything about the operations for these ride-hailing um, apps, including licensing, the um, insurance that the uh, vehicle drivers have to have, permitting, where people can and can't pick them up, how many operators can exist in certain locations so that they can target specific economic need, and then also they can control the pricing, which fascinates me because Uber and Lyft operate on this model of, of you know, surge pricing. The price that you pay reflects the demand. And so you can, as a driver, you can control your schedule to drive only at the times where you're paid more. And as a user, you can choose not to use the service. If it's going to be more expensive, you can take advantage of the slower times. And the BC government's going to eliminate all of those things about ride hailing for this province. So their intention is to make it uh, like fixed, fixed prices for- I don't know if it's gonna be fixed or whether they can control like the minimum and the maximum rates. That's unclear, but they have they have a lot of control over the day-to-day -day operations of drivers, which well, is why Uber is speaking out against if it. If Uber doesn't like it, somebody else is going to come along, and maybe they're hoping for a BC-based solution. And <laughs> we've had some creative solutions in Richmond for a while. <laughs> maybe somebody is going to apply and create a, something that is similar to Uber if Uber is not willing to follow the law. Well, a lot of people have said that. They've looked at sort of these you know, these car sharing programs and like how BCAA has done really well with Evo and Cardigo has done well, although not well enough because they pulled out of certain locations. Um, and so they're comparing it to that. And, and the thinking is that there's going to be this made in BC ride sharing solution. But I just don't see how it's going to be an affordable thing for somebody to do in like the gig economy that us millennials really like. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, you, you have people who, who drive for Uber and Lyft, who, um, who drive for both companies, 
who deliver for for services like Skip the Dishes and Just Eat and Foodora and DoorDash and all of them. But, but, but what infrastructure does Uber really need, okay? So Uber is, is a wash in money. Uh, they make maps for people and beside that, besides that, it's some probably some software that's really not that difficult for software engineers to design. We have software engineers in British Columbia. I mean, somebody, Uber's thing, the reason that Uber is is so successful and doesn't have that many competitors aside from Lyft is because they were out of the gate first and they are well known. Well, if they're not going to get out of the gate in British Columbia, somebody else can come along. The model's already been created. All they have to do is tweak it. If Uber doesn't feel they can tweak it, you know, for British Columbia and they're going to be holdouts, uh, they're going to lose. But should they have to tweak it for British Columbia? I mean, here you have... Yeah. The, no, no, because there's <laughs> a customer base that expects things to be a certain way. And imagine if you're an Uber, you know, an Uber user from San Francisco and you come for your vacation to British Columbia and you load up your Uber app and all of a sudden it's completely different from what you're used to. As a customer, you're going to be ticked off, not at the provincial government. You're not going to know where the blame lies there. You're going to be ticked off at the company. And it's so good. what? The company doesn't have to work here. I mean, if, if Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, uses some spice in something that is prohibited in one state, they don't use it in that state. You might The chicken might taste a little bit different, but that's the way it goes. No, I mean, the state would adapt to accommodate Kentucky Fried Chicken. No. No way. In the U.S., yes, it would. <laughs> you go to California and look at uh, and look at the regulations for um, a lot of the fire code regulations for North America have been adopted because California set higher limits, and those companies continued to want to work in California, so they adopted all of those California uh, requirements for chemicals in furniture and and in foam and things like that. And California is the one that force the change on many things like that. So if British Columbia comes along, Uber, you know, they, they will either adapt to meet the model or somebody else will do it. See, I see this as them just creating a different class of taxi. Another unaffordable, unavailable, difficult to use system that's going to fail British Columbians. Well, now here's the problem with commentators and it's even, you know, on a uh, podcast. Well, no, look, I mean, think of how many times that we are called upon by the media to give an opinion about something and propose legislation. Okay, so everybody were proposed something that's going to happen. Everybody was freaked out uh, about the cannabis impaired drivers and that was... Um, you know, heavy-duty news for a long time, and it was something that was coming up. And in the end, it, it's been a non-story after uh, legalization so far, and that may change. So now we're talking about proposed legislation and how it's going to play out and how corporations are going to adapt to it. And, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I just think that there is room for uh, other players to come along and be innovative and maybe Uber will be forced to be innovative and maybe the government will make some compromises down the road but you know it's the government is entitled to pass the legislation uh, that it sees fit it's got uh, you know if they've got enough votes in the in the legislature to do it they do it okay well then let me ask you this so this ride-hailing board that they're creating with this legislation 
is all oh, you're rolling your eyes. Why are you rolling your eyes? Another board. Another board. Well, of <laughs> course, everything is done by tribunals these days, Paul. Um, but the board is all people who are appointed by the NDP. Yeah, I know. Well, boards and tribunals, and they are all appointed. Uh, it's hard to find. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that suggests that it's like a conspiracy. Um, it's very hard to conspire. I mean, I, I don't know what they'd be conspiring to do in any event, but I don't, like, I, I'm assuming that it's a, with all other regular regulatory boards, I start with the assumption that they're trying to do a good job. Okay, well, one thing that seems positive, although a lot of people are quite cynical about it, is that the legislation has a provision that allows for a special fee to be charged per trip or per driver, we don't know yet, to try and make vehicles have accommodations for users with disabilities. That's going to be hard for them. That is going to be a hard thing to facilitate. Interesting that the government would go that direction, and I, I understand why they would, but that's going to be a hard thing for Uber or Lyft or anybody to facilitate because you're talking about drivers basically trying to get a car that is the cheapest, most reliable car that's going to be reasonably yeah, clean. I mean, I and how many Ubers I've written in that are Toyota Priuses or... Or Hyundai yeah. Accents or something like that. Um, so when you're putting pressure on people to have some bigger vehicle, it's going to have more gas, fuel costs. It's going to be... Special equipment for lifting yeah. wheelchairs. And then how, so you're, you're roping the company, you're roping Uber or Lyft or whoever into collecting this from their users and then remitting it to the government who then distributes it to the drivers or is it distributed by the company to the drivers or does it go back to government generally? Details, details, Kyla. I'm sure they've got a year at least to work it out before even or, ICBC's. Or more because they said, you know, in all of their announcements, it was like, oh, this is going to come by 2019, by 2019. And now when they were pressured on it, their answers were, well, maybe 2019, maybe 2020. Maybe later. Well, the legislation will probably be passed this session, so be you know in the next three weeks probably. Uh, after that, the uh, it's up to everybody to facilitate it. Everything that they promise that's a significant change. Any government, it always ends up taking longer. Cannabis legalization went, you know, four months, five months longer than than they had planned, and that was already years into the mandate mm -hmm. to do it. So yes, this could take some time. You know, it, Uber and, and, well, Uber in other locations just set up basically unregulated and probably illegally and with insurance companies not knowing that these people were driving people around. And that's sort of how they got started in other locations. And then later on, there was a, there was a, uh, Ad, you know, adaptations made to make it lawful and to properly regulate it. And in BC, because of ICBC, uh, you know, the government has been able to categorically keep them out. Interesting that you should mention ICBC, because one thing you'd think the legislation would be very clear on is creating an insurance scheme for this and making a very clear mandatory insurance scheme. It's Do you think they did that? It's kicking the ball down the road. That's yeah. all they were doing. Yeah. So they, 
the ICBC they've given until like next September or something at uh, yep. 11 months or Basically 10 months. Basically it to says and ICBC will figure out the insurance, insurance aspect. I, I wish I could write legislation. All my legislation would be like somebody else will figure out this legislation for me. Uh, I wonder if it'll be in like ICBC policy or if it's got to be in regulation form. Yeah. Um, and then once they create it then it still has to go through approval by the BC Utilities Commission. So you know that's a huge... It's unfortunate that it's this much, like, what seems like unnecessary paperwork. I would imagine the people... I don't know why we can't just copy what Alberta did or copy what Ontario did. Well, they both have, have private insurance schemes. Sure, but, uh, I mean, you can tweak, then just copy everything except the insurance side of what they did and then just write the insurance legislation. And then it's easy. Well, I would think that they should be able to copy 90% of it and some of these other things where they want to collect to make sure that people with disabilities are properly served they could tweak that after the fact after they've determined if there is a problem what the problem is and and fix it so after all of this cannabis legislation was proposed and introduced and they claimed they needed years to be able to get it right uh, then they came out and said we know this is not right and we're going to have to fix it here and there as things play out well this is one of those circumstances where it's been delayed to get it right they still are far from probably getting it right, and mm. they're going to have to change it and change it and change it. And the delay has been, it looks like, people sitting on their hands or doing the standard thing, which is people sitting there puzzled, trying to figure out what to do, and then they don't do anything. I would just, just repealed all the cannabis-related provisions of the CDSA, and away you go. How about our free market? Yeah, no, I... It's very libertarian of you. Yes, well. Um, I, I, yeah, I probably, I, aside from producing and selling, uh, you know, which I think still has to be regulated, I think a lot of the rest of it is, should be just full-on free market. Sure, believe that, you know, production and selling regulations to the provinces and have at our free market. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's me. Um, all right, so the last <laughs> thing I want to ask you about this Uber legislation, because when there were announcements that there was going to be an announcement, which I always love. Um, you started walking the streets, ringing your doomsday bell. The end is near, the end is near for driving law in the province. Um, well, yeah, no, I mean, I've, I don't say that I would say that I was ringing my doomsday bell, but they will be... Um, probably fewer driving offenses out there uh, if people are using Uber, most of the people I've found who are driving Uber are pretty good, conscientious drivers. They're not perfect, but uh, sometimes a little sure bit too quick. Sure safer than taxi drivers. Yeah, safer than taxi drivers, and I don't know why that is. Um, the um, So, I, I mean, it could be fewer, fewer offenses committed on the road. could be fewer impaired driving offenses. There's been claims that Uber has accomplished that in some locations. The original statistics were highly questionable. Uh, it was, you know, Uber paid MAD to, mm -hmm. to do it, so nothing from MAD is trustworthy. Um, so, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see. It could be fewer driving offenses. It could be less driving law going through the courts. Uh, it could be that driving law has less of an impact, uh, you know, moving ahead. And it could be that big companies like Uber find a way to challenge the government's heavy-handed regulation of this, and we see more driving law cases. 
Could be. I, I mean, I don't know. There's been lots of cases with Uber drivers who have been drinking. Uh, mm -hmm. That's one of the, sort of the consistent things. Yeah, so Uber's not stopping drinking and driving. It's just making different people drink and drive. It's the, it's the Uber drivers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I, I think it... Um, say for every uh, um, 10 impaired drivers on the road, you might take one impaired driver off the road uh, if they, you know, if there's quick, easily accessible transport. I don't know. Probably don't not the people who are at like 220 because that's when the really bad decisions yeah, are made. Yeah, that's when you're not thinking about but, Uber. But you're like, I can drive. But the people who've had two, three drinks and might be, you know, blow 110 or blow 70 or something like that might make that decision to not drive. But, but we're course, not seeing those huge aren't the people who cause accidents generally. We're not seeing huge reductions in the rates of impaired driving in Ontario or Alberta. I mean, I don't know if Saskatchewan and Manitoba and all the other provinces and territories have Uber, but Ontario and Alberta have used it, so I know it's there. We don't see big reductions in the rates of impaired driving. It's still a flourishing industry there. Yeah, so maybe I was sold by the fake studies done by I think you Mothers were, Against because overall we're not seeing that. I think you also were sold by some doom and gloom from some people we know in the States who were winding up their impaired driving practices saying, you know, Uber killed our industry, but... Turns no, nobody said that. I made drew those assumptions. Oh, you, you but drew that inference. Oh, I, I thought they said that. The uh, no, no. I think some of those people failed to market. to well, they failed to market their services properly, but they also um, failed to reinvent themselves when things changed. Um, you know, sort of the way that I did when the immediate roadside prohibition scheme came out. I didn't look at it as um, somehow, you know, uh, reducing my ability to practice as a lawyer, I looked at it as, okay, well, this is now what I have to do, and I have to be very, very good at it because I have to be able to accomplish what I need to accomplish for my clients. So I I rejigged. Um, it's the old dog, new tricks thing. And we've seen versions of the IRP scheme, not, nothing like the IRP scheme, but we've seen more uh, DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, driving prohibitions um, everywhere. And I've, you know, as I've said now for 10 years, we should, instead of having a association of uh, impaired driving lawyers that, you know, you belong to three. Uh, I, so do I, I belong to three. <laughs> anyway, well, I created one uh, like 12 years ago. You uh, also belong to that one. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't really exist anymore. Does but the, um, the, we probably should have created like the International Association of DMV Lawyers a long time ago because every time you know, we're talking to these lawyers or uh, either one of us is at a conference, it's always coming up that, um, you know, how you deal with DMV hearings and it's never something that's presented on in the conference. Part of the reason for that is because it's different legislation, so different in each state um, and province. Uh, but really, the, you know, you think of the um, case law that you've developed yourself in the IRP scheme uh, a lot of those arguments should be used by other lawyers in other locations. Uh, so I, I think that it's largely an issue of lawyers not reinventing themselves, not Uber. Well, there you go. But Uber is an issue, um, and, you know, it's an issue of reinventing yourself when it comes out. Yeah, well, it'll be fascinating to see how this legislation develops and how it impacts ride-hailing apps and ride-hailing generally when 
if and when it is passed and implemented. So we're going to be watching it closely here on the Driving Law Podcast. I want to talk one just quickly about Uber. One last thing, and Kyla wants to wrap up. I do. This is the thing about Uber that um, and Lyft that I like, and that is that people who would be otherwise marginally employed can get employment. Um, so y- you might come to Canada, you might only be here for a couple of years, your English might not be great, you might feel stigmatized about where you came from, uh, you might not have some opportunity to get a, a good job somewhere else. You can be basically self-employed, but and that's mm, the thing I like But not under it. the BC scheme, because it's going to be so expensive to become an Uber driver. Vehicle requirements, um, insurance... Uh, licensing fees, all of that. It's going to be prohibitively expensive for people like that to get into the industry. Lease the car, borrow it from your brother-in-law who's also an Uber driver, um, you know, pay the $200. It's I probably not going to be allowed. No, well, I, I guess we'll see. We'll so see we will monitor. Going to have. We, will, yeah. we will monitor. We will monitor it. And anyway, we thank you for letting me have that extra <laughs> word. I'm sorry, if we were on a, like a radio program, I would have just been cut off there. Yeah, they would have played the music yeah. over you. If this was the Oscars, they'd be dragging you off the stage. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us and share your thoughts about Uber or you want to share any thoughts or comments uh, for me to pass on to Eric McGracken about ICBC caps and insurance uh, injury definitions and minor injuries, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.